You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you for the murder mystery world tour you've been waiting for. The one <laughs> where we don't actually solve a murder mystery. We are uh... discussing Jock Sarong's The Rules of Backyard Cricket, and we have reached the end of that tale. Herds. Flex. I... I, I'm, I'm torn on this one, and not for not for the reasons I normally come in and say I'm torn, because th- there have been have been several I've been torn about. Uh huh. Why are you torn, Flex? What's the issue? The, the thing I'm torn about is that I absolutely love this story, and we're discussing uh, from decline to the forest today. And uh, the thing that's getting me hurts is that I was so satisfied by this ending as I was reading it. Mm. It was everything was visceral. Everything was direct. It carried through the thematics of the story so well. Yeah, yeah. I think if you were reading along with this, you could see exactly why I stopped where I did because <laughs> the the very next chapter is like a big reveal, more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But having finished it, the more I think about it, the less satisfied I get. And it's not because anything is wrong with the story. It's just because it's kind of miserable yeah i i really want to talk about that because this this is going to tie in with my solution that i gave last week as well mm. and why i don't know if i'm getting points or not um simply because i th- the depths of hell and misery that jock strong has put us through i didn't think we were going to go this far and and here we are um but i did enjoy the ending i i think the uh the animalistic escape you know, the, the vicious, visceral moments in the backseat of the car mm. where our main character, Darren, is trying to just fight for his life, battle against multiple armed thugs and Krago, who is, as we know, is just is just a, a, a hulk of a man. Like, he's facing down certain death and he's trying to break free. Um, and actually, I, I did want to say, I also want to commend this story for having everyone act in character. Like, despite it being, you know, this big twist, we're like, actually, everyone that Darren thought was kind of all right is an awful person. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the way that Joxeron delivers this twist, every character still is acting the way that we expect them to. It doesn't feel out of place, yeah. despite being such a such a 180 in the, in the story. But as I say, it is... A little bit too miserable for my liking. <laughs> yeah. I think that the thing that I've seen a lot of reviews say about this book that it seems you're struggling with as well is that yeah. final twist in that sure. you can kind of see it coming. It's not really a great twist because it's foreshadowed so heavily that you can see it like headlights appearing in the distance. Well, well it was a bad man the whole time. Yeah. Shock. <laughs> I don't think it's particularly shocking or horribly done or anything, but we'll discuss that as we get further into the mystery. But I think that the issue is, is that once you've kind of read through the scene, there's nothing to enjoy about it because it is just yeah. the resounding death blow. The themes of the themes of what's actually going on, that this is all about, you know, the dark underbelly of, of cricket, of a national sport. Um, there's, there's a really great line that is delivered by our, our lovable thug, Crago, that's, you know, you could see the corruption, but cricket is is, like, even more corrupt. And even if people knew how, like, dark it got, like, they'd still just stuff their faces with it. Mm. And the line that he kind of ends on is that there are people who play the game of cricket, and then there's people like him who play the game. Like, it's this entire send-up of the corrupt side of, of match-fixing, and that's kind of what Jock Sarong is writing about. He's writing just about how this uh, this seemingly innocent <clears throat> character, I mean sport, <laughs> is actually, like, on the underside, completely riddled with disease and corruption. Yeah, I think that the the line that really solidifies that entire sequence to me is when Krago's busted in, has his thugs beating up Darren, 
and the the chapter just ends with, oh, God, I'm what happened to Hannah. Yeah, totally. And it's like this kind of beautiful summary of all of the ethics of the story in that even though he had no idea what he was doing, he was told to do the wrong thing, accidentally didn't do the wrong thing, he still feels guilt over what happened on account of it. The moral circle of the story kind of comes back to where it began right there, where we see that even though Darren is this flailing, horrible, drug-addled individual, he still has that moral center that his mother gave to him. His mother is obviously very important. There's a very poignant, again, coming back to the media circus, because this is my favorite part of the novel, I think. But Amy Harris, she she comes back, you know, at the end of the novel for one final, you know, news report on Darren and Wally. And she makes the point that now that Darren doesn't have his mother looking after him, the, the fact that he, like, can't control himself and he acts like a child, like, that's going to get worse and worse and worse. And, of course, the, the twist is that though Amy is, again, highlighting Darren's behavior, it's not just Darren who's being held back by his mother. It's it's another character, of course. Can I talk about that <laughs> moment, Herds? Because I'm, I'm sure you've clued into what's going in in that moment. Sure. Amy Harris is writing a hit piece about Darren after Wally tried to suffocate their dementia-addled mother. Not only is that a great reveal scene to show the true Wally per se, even though it isn't really a break of character as you were saying earlier in the discussion. And somehow Darren remains like clueless to what's going on. He's reflecting on what Amy Harris has written and he's like, oh God, she's right, isn't she? And it's like, what are you saying, Darren? Your brother tried to murder someone in in public. In front of you, yeah. Like you're, you're being taken down to like protect Wally. And that really, that really is this entire novel in a nutshell. Because I mentioned this in a previous, uh, a previous part that he's kind of characterized by his weird sense of luck. Yeah. In that he, he always seems to, you know, make the right play at the right time or be in the same room with the right people. And then, you know, when he's actually playing cricket, he accidentally hit that bat, even though he didn't mean to. As with most things in this novel, when we get to the end, we find out that his luck is a combination of actually really terrible luck because most of those events are what lead to his, like, eventual downfall. Um, And also uh, people moving in the background, stuff that Wally and Craig were very, very much aware of, um, but that Darren, you know, he says, oh, well, it was, you know, it was was fortunate that I met Craig at this time. It's, It's a good thing he was around to support me. You know, he's a good friend. Glad I met him. Yeah. But- all of this is calculated. All this is part of a bigger picture that Darren never really sees, and that uh, we, we as the as the reader, as the audience, we only really get to kind of see glimpses of, and we have to kind of put it together ourselves. Yeah, and I think ultimately it comes together very cleanly in that way. In sure. that, even though by the end, as we've been saying, it's very obvious what the twist is going to be, and it's a little underwhelming that there's no bright light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. It's, it's not as though it is done out of spite for us <laughs> okay. trying to solve the story. Sure. Right? It's done with a very honest hand showing how these characters have developed and grown over the years. The things that we've been saying in previous episodes about how well the voice of the characters carries across through all of the different years of their age and as their perspectives change 
despite it being so distinct as you went through all of the different ages of them growing up, it's so consistent in that it sure. always sounds like them. And that carries through right through to that final scene with Krago uh, in Darren's hotel room where they're basically just bantering back and forth before Krago reveals what's really going on. <laughs> you can still yeah. see the images of these two teenagers who became friends in unlikely circumstances, but- now one of them's a fat old gangster with two thugs in the room and the other one's a decrepit old retiree. Yeah. And it's just, it's it's so clean and <laughs> kind of beautifully depressing in a way. It's very poignant. Yeah, no, it definitely is. The last thing I want to talk about before we, we throw to the music herds is I think the one complaint that I have about this book, and it's similar to the ending in that there isn't much of a resolution. Sure. But also that a lot of the earlier plot threads don't have a resolution. Like, the question about what actually happened to Hannah is never really answered. She's just gone, maybe dead, question mark. On the one hand, I think it's appropriate because, you know, life keeps moving past Darren. That's kind of one of the themes of the novel. I would agree. (laughs) But at the same time- uh, even though life keeps moving past Darren, we never get to find out what life is doing. To kind of put a point on that, we're seeing the stone that falls into the pond. We're not seeing the ripples as they fan out. We're not seeing anything beyond what the stone sees, right? We're only seeing that focal point. Well, Herds, it's time to cast the stone aside for a moment. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I didn't know what Absolutely. to do with that one, Herds. It was so it was such a beautiful image. Why would you cast the stone aside? It's already in the water. What you should do is like look at another I don't pond. Know, maybe I wanted to go swimming, Herds. <laughs> it's only a small stone though. Anyway. We are discussing jocks around the rules of backyard cricket. Have you ever skipped stones, Flex? <laughs> oh my goodness, Herds. Let me round out the segment. <laughs> <laughs> we are discussing decline to the forest in Joxerong's The Rules of Backyard Cricket. This is Death of the Reader, and we'll be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you, and I am joined on the line currently by the author of the most expensive book I have ever bought, uh, the founder of the Nio Marsh Awards and author of Southern Cross Crime, Craig Sisterton. Welcome to the show, Craig. It is so good to have you. Oh, Kieran, g'day, Felix. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, the, co- the cover price on my book is is quite standard, but um, but I've had a lot of people tell me it's ended up being very expensive because I bought <laughs> because of it. So. Yeah, it's one of those things like, you know, I'll, I'll admit I'm not super far into this because I keep just getting stopped and then going to browse online, look at the books you've recommended, and then I've bought a couple of them and I'm starting to read those. And I like, Craig, you've done yourself a little bit of a disservice by writing such an authentic catalogue. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I mean, I've um, I've been fortunate enough to be involved uh, in a little way with New Zealand and Australian crime writing for about 12 years since I started reviewing it and uh, for magazines and newspapers. And I was very keen from the start to include Australian and New Zealand crime novels in my reviews, which wasn't done a lot back then, 12 years ago. A lot's changed in, in 10 or 12 years. and. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had so many wonderful opportunities, uh, festivals all around the world, uh, interviewing authors, talking to some amazing authors. And so it was kind of my way of giving back and sharing like my love, but also giving back or paying forward all the cool stuff that I've had happen over the last 10 or 12 years. So I hope that um, I hope people get something out of it. We've obviously, like everyone, had some major issues with the <laughs> pandemic. 
Uh, we had to sea freight the books to Australia and New Zealand, which took months rather mm. than being air freighted, and and they're still trickling into shops now, but they're not there like stacked really high in bookstores for everyone to see. But your local bookshop can get it for you if you want. So I hope that it finds its way into readers' hands. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's been really interesting to me that you mentioned is you've been reviewing crime fiction for so long. And whilst it might feel to me with my immense hubris that perhaps I've dug a solid dent into the surface of crime fiction and murder mystery, I I really haven't. And interestingly enough, when I was first getting into it, yours was a name that kept coming up uh, because I was researching murder mysteries and trying to find mysteries that I could read that would kind of teach me some of the tricks of the genre without uh, inadvertently spoiling the notoriously difficult book I was reading at the time. And, you know, yours was one of those names that kept popping up with reviews, with the Nio Marsh Awards. So you've been embedded in this culture for so long. And I guess one of the most interesting things to me is that covering uh, what what is a relatively small period of time, the modern crime fiction you talk about in Southern Cross Crime. How have you seen the kind of culture and the style of the genre change here? How have things evolved over your 12 years dealing with the genre? That's a great question, Felix, and it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily have a small answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, in general, you would say that we're in a a golden age. I mean, it's such a cliche, Mm. but it's just true. We really are. And it's not that we haven't had lots of great crime fiction in the past, because we have. And and although my book does focus on the last 25 years, from the mid-'90s till now, and I chose that because 25 years is a is a nice time period, but it's also, it was the mid nineties when the Australian Crime Writers Association was established. The first Ned Kelly award was given. And so that was kind of a good demarcation point. And there was crime fiction before that dating the way back to the 1800s, as I touch on in the intro to the book and stuff with uh, the likes of Mary Fortune and Alan Davitt and then Fergus Hume. And then obviously Dane Marsh, one of the key, uh, one of the, uh, queens of crime of the golden age in the 20s, 30s, 40s, etc. There definitely has been an explosion of numbers and a diversity of voices and quality. And that's been marvellous to see. It's a little bit like the old Kevin Costner film, you know, um, Field of Dreams, Build It and They Will Come, you know, kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the Australian Crime Writers Association and preceding them, Sisters in Crime, who actually began a few years earlier. I do want to pay tribute to Sisters in Crime because sometimes I think with the Naya Marsh Awards being kind of the official New Zealand awards and the Ned Kelly's being the Australian kind of national crime running awards, not that we forget those of us who uh, are kind of embedded in it know very well, but I think it's good for the general public as well to know and the readers of just how much Sisters in Crime, Lindy Cameron, uh, Karma Shoot and others have done but in a roundabout way, I think that build it, they will come and kind of legitimizes crime fiction as a great vehicle for people to tell the stories they want. I've kind of felt that interviewing authors, like I've interviewed American authors about, um, you know, including social injustice and race relations issues in their crime fiction. And they're like, yeah, crime fiction is actually one of the best ways as a creator to discuss these issues. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things for us coming from the perspective of the golden age that we've spoken about on the show is dealing with 
so many of the social issues, even at times that they weren't necessarily kind of acceptable to talk about as we see them mm. today. For example, the exa- uh, the one we'll keep bringing up uh, because we covered it on the show was Too Many Cooks by Rex Stout, which dealt with a lot of uh, race politics, but in a way that just fit itself into the mystery. And on that same front, uh, the rules of backyard cricket, which we're covering at the moment, you wrote in Southern Cross Crime that it was a bit of a Cain and Abel story. And as someone who is notoriously uh, oblivious to Bible references like that, I thought that that was a really great summary of how this book kind of dug into Australian culture using this Cain and Abel-esque narrative. And one thing that surprised me when we spoke to Robert Gott and also when we posted about it on social media was just how keen people are on the rules of backyard cricket. So what is it you think for something that uses this meta structure, which we've spoken about on the show, that really helps kind of guide a story through its paces? You know, how is it that an Australian kind of narrative of this kind can just hit so hard in the modern day? What is it that sets the novels apart that really are special like that, like what Jane Harper's been doing and the other authors we've been speaking about? Well, that's an excellent question, Felix. And I think first and foremost, Jock Sarong is a wonderful writer. He is just a really, really good writer. His use of language, how he describes things, how he evokes different things. It's really wonderful. He's a, um, you know, he writes about crime stuff and dark topics and historical dark things in some of his other books. But he's a wonderful writer, his use of language and, and the way that that hits you differently than if you describe the same thing in a different way. So his use of language and words, and and sometimes that's kind of minimised and not talked about a lot with genre fiction and crime fiction, is that there are some amazing stylists in crime fiction. There are some people who are really terrific with words just just the same as a Booker Prize winner or a Booker Prize longlisty is. Um, They just happen to write crime stories, you know, kind of thing. So sometimes that does get overlooked. But Jock is a wonderful writer. He also touches on a a variety of important issues. I mean, I love that book for so many ways. It's one of my favourite Australian crime novels of the past 10 years. Um, it's one that I recommend to people. It won't be for everyone. It's a bit of a Marmite book or a Vegemite book. You know, <laughs> some people will love it. Some people will hate it. Um, but I really love it. Um, interestingly, and this is always, sorry, Felix, this has always been something that's kind of prickled at me a little bit because I, as I say on Twitter, I'm a sports-loving book nerd. Um, You know, I was the kid who was in the library one lunchtime and out playing touch rugby on the field the other. And I don't think you have to be either. Sometimes there seems to be this division, you know, kind of thing, of the jock or the nerd, and I was kind of both. But it's kind of rare in a relative sense for crime novels to be set in the sports world. That's always, I've always thought that was a bit of an untapped opportunity and there are writers who do it around the world, but proportionally it's very small. When you consider how pervasive sports and sports culture is, and there's so many things going on with money and corruption and betting and drugs, and um, sport is wonderful in so many ways, physical activity and health and, and competition and all those things. And then it's also got the the kind of other other side of the sword, the double-edged sword, the bad things to do with it. So I just think it's an amazing setting to potentially set crime novels. I'm surprised more people don't set them there, whether that's publishers like they used to think you couldn't set a book in Australia and people would buy it. I think a lot of publishers all around the world think that people don't want to read about sports because the people who like sports don't necessarily read, which is not true, but I think there is a 
misperception out there about that. Craig, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader as a show that likes to trace the connections between authors and, you know, the field of the genre as a whole. It is so good having someone like yourself around to remind us that we're not the only ones going insane at the task. (laughs) It's been absolutely my pleasure, Felix. Thanks for having me. If you are interested in checking out Southern Cross Crime, we will have links up on the podcast. And as Craig said, of course, you can hopefully find it at your friendly local bookstore. You are listening to Death of the Reader. We're discussing the rules of Backyard Cricket by Jock Zerong, and we'll be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you for your Murder Mystery World Tour, discussing the decline to the forest in Jock Zerong's The Rules of Backyard Cricket. We have reached the end of this novel. If you are still here or if you are just tuning in, spoilers are abound, so please do be cautious. But Herds, it is that time of the show where I have got to dish out to you points or not. Okay, look, I'm going to be real. I don't know if I'm getting any points. Just tell me. Just tell me how I'm doing. Here's the thing, Herds. I'm confused why you don't think you're getting points because- I don't know. To my mind, and listen, I was- I was unsure okay. about your answers last week, partially because we're doing this show over the internet and you're cutting out for me occasionally. Uh-huh. Good. Uh, sorry to spoil the magic. And partially because your answers were a bit uh, scattered. It was a bit of a mess. Can, can I tell you then, before you tell me how many points I got, can I tell you the parts that I'm most frustrated about, the elements of the story that I'm... Because mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about this and we kind of touched upon this in the first half, but I I just wanted something slightly less miserable. Some of my favorite stories of all time are about like reaching the very bottom of moral depravity, but then having, you know, they have that moment or maybe they have a sequence where they like realize like, oh, this is why like doing that thing is wrong and like how I can fix it and that sort of thing. And so two of the predictions that I made was that Wally was responsible for Hannah's disappearance. Maybe he's just hiding her away somewhere until he can bring her back and, like, make this big, oh, we found her, isn't that great? Woo! Um, the other prediction that I made was that if if anyone was going to get murdered, like, in a, in a poignant way, was that uh, Darren was going to kill Wally, which, again, I thought would be a good way for Darren to, like, make up for his own mistakes. Neither of those happened because Jock Sarong is a heartless man I think, Uh, (laughs) perhaps to your chagrin, I think you've got both your points this week. You know what? I'll take it. If this was a murder mystery, Herds, I would have been sitting here cackling Uh. over the line to you, going, (laughs) you were so close on this, but you were just far enough away that I will rip that point out from under your legs, and you will fall and collapse into the fiery wreckage of Prego's car. Uh Or something to that effect. I don't want to be down there. Except, Herds, that this isn't a murder mystery novel. This is a crime fiction novel about a dude in the back of a car on his way to get murdered. Mm -hmm. And this novel, by the traditional rules, doesn't really play fair by any metric. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the premise of the novel. I, I, I think that you couldn't have gotten any closer without luck. Interesting. In the... Goodwill of fair play. I will give you both your spirit, points, yeah. even though you were a little off the mark yeah, in, in a couple of places. You know, I'll take, look, I still think I did a very good job of solving things. Yeah, I, I agree with your summary and also your opinion that this is miserable and would be nice to have another way. But I also think that it would be dishonest to the core of the novel 
when when really ultimately the fact that this book had such a reactive effect on the both of us speaks to the quality of its writing because sure. the fact that we are discussing this rather than just being fru- like completely frustrated with it means that we are still asking a question and i think that that is what the book is posing is that question and before we move on on this herds I do have Jocks Wrong on the line to answer a little bit more about this for us, so ask away. So, Jock, now that I've got you uh, in in the room with us, can I ask why did you why did you decide on writing such a depressing ending for these characters? <laughs> well, there is a specific reason for that, and that is that uh, Darren Keefe is in the boot of a car being driven to his death, and I was really fascinated by the notion that. Everyone's got to die at some point. Some of us will have time to think about our death and some of us won't. And Darren's got roughly an hour in the boot of the car to think about what his life amounted to and where it ended up. And to me, it had to spiral towards the ending that it does so that Darren could go through that experience, I guess. Now, Jock, thank you so much for joining us once again. As always, we'll have links up on the podcast to Jock's latest book, The Burning Island, if you're curious. Now, Herds, the other thing, the other question, Herds, Uh-oh. that we said we would answer this episode, or at least attempt to, oh my goodness. is where does a story like this fit in with murder mystery and crime fiction and detective fiction? On the periphery. <laughs> as I've said, and as we were talking when I was dishing out your points, Herds, this book is not a detective novel. Like, if I was to read down the the rules of let's just go with Knox because it's the shorter <laughs> list right here. You know, the criminal must be mentioned in the early part of the story. Does that. No secret rooms or passages doesn't matter here. No hitherto undiscovered poisons doesn't really matter here. Yeah. No Chinaman must figure into the story. I mean, Crago kind of, but also that's the yeah. point. Well, this, yeah, well this, this is the thing, right? That when we don't really break a lot of the rules, but that's because none of the rules really matter to the story. Exactly. It's, exactly. So, it's so far away. And this is, this is, some, we should have a broader discussion about this at some point, but like, there are some stories obviously, that are so far away from the, like, pre-established rules that they just have nothing to do with them. But ultimately, Herds, the takeaway from this novel is this, is that we are looking on this show, your Murder Mystery World Tour, at the broader inspirations and influences of murder mystery fiction. And this is the first, well, the the furthest step we've taken away from home. Is that a pun? A sport pun, like in baseball? How you have like the home base? Was that a no? It was more of a more of a Lord of the Rings reference, but anyway. Oh, that one works too. <laughs> this uh, is the farthest step I've taken from home. I think I, I think that novels like this are really significant, impactful, and something that I guess I would, and I don't know about you, Herds, but I think imagine you as well would be curious if you would like us to cover more of these novels on the show because this isn't a murder mystery story. Yeah. And even though this show covers the best of murder mystery, if we're going to carry this show on herds and we're nearing the end of the year now, uh, our, our second year doing death of the reader is, is the regular detour from murder mystery something that we should Look, be doing? What all I'm saying is what we should do is we should go back, we should read the Odyssey and we should try to solve who blinded Polyphemus. I feel like that's <laughs> that's a mystery I can get behind, okay? Right, so if we're, it, so what you're saying, Herds, is we have to go to the very beginning of fiction and work yeah. through chronologically every fiction that has been released since? We have to figure out how both somebody has blinded Polyphemus but also nobody has blinded Polyphemus. <laughs> we have to figure that one out. That's, right. that's my classical classical Greek reference. Enjoy that one. Anyway. Well, <laughs> if you have an opinion on the matter, hit us up at Flex and Herds. 
on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We we still we still have a good couple of months left on the show though this year, so you got some time. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere. Herds, I set you a challenge. Yeah, so I want to I want to tell you before I tell you what novel we're actually doing. Um, you know how we both said, you know, wouldn't wouldn't Mahjong be a great backdrop for a murder mystery? I'm gonna read you out some of the names of the murder mysteries that I found, and also the authors' names, just real quick. <laughs> the Mahjong Murder Mysteries by Dale A. Johnson. A Mahjong is a space there. Mystery by Violeta Amour. Uh, the Mahjong Crimes iOS game set on the Orange Express. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on, but the- I, I think I've got the point here. <laughs> the point is. Those Westerners sure think that Mahjong is a great setting for a murder mystery, even oh, for a novel God. that has nothing to do with Japan. Oh, um, no. So I went in the opposite direction. I found us a <laughs> novel called Sayonara Slam by Naomi Hirahara. Now, this is a baseball-related uh, murder mystery. Um, oh, yes. With the backdrop of a Jap- Japan versus South Korean uh, baseball game. Um, and I have picked this because Naomi Hirahara, she is a, a Japanese-American and her claim to fame is that her father was born in California, moved to Hiroshima, survived Hiroshima, and then he came back to America. And so she loves to chat about World War II, and that's what we're going to be discussing, and I'm looking forward to it. I, listen, Herds, I, I set you a task yep. that honestly was because I couldn't complete it myself. I know, I know. And you've, and come, back in, you've come back in stellar colours, This, colors, is, this is the only novel I could find, and it sounds if, perfect. It, okay, Herds, mm. if I don't get both points for this next book, <laughs> you get the points I don't. I'll take it, I'll take it. Alrighty. Because um, well done. Thank well you, done. thank you. I can't believe, she's also won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for this series, so I'm looking Looking forward oh, to well, it. There you go. Anyway, so for next week, we will be covering chapters one to five. Herds, it's been a pleasure joining you for Jock's Wrongs, The Rules of Backyard Cricket. This is a phenomenal novel, and I'm so glad we got to experience it because, listen, shout out to Robert Gott. I would have com- this w- book would have flown completely past my radar if it wasn't for him. And uh, we much appreciate his contribution towards the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for introducing us to this torturous experience of human apathy and. Just, it's been awful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, thank you, Robert Gott, for being a fantastic guest and a wonderful, I would say, mentor, really. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we have been Flex and Herds. This is Death of the Reader. We will be back in two weeks with Naomi Hirahara's Sayonara Slam because next week is Radiothon here on 2SER. Be sure to subscribe at 2SER.com to help Sydney thrive. We will see you next week for a live show for that. See you then. Mm-hmm.